Greetings and welcome back to The Dive, the weekly podcast series in which we take a look at a topic that was covered in the previous week's Daf Yomi pages and look at it in depth. My name is Yitzchak Shalom and we're now nearing the end of our study of Masachat Shabbat in Daf Yomi. Uh, and there is a topic which we have uh, so far not addressed, at least not directly, uh, which really is a, a major uh, topic in the last uh, third of the Masachet, uh, really from chapter 17 through chapter 21. Um, it plays a prominent role in all sorts of ways. Uh, it is also a topic which becomes very significant in Masachet Beitzah, and that is the topic that we commonly call Muktza. Um, so we're going to take a look at some of the foundations of Muktza, some of the general categories and parameters of Muktza, some of the reasons behind Muktza, and starting off with some definitional things. Um, the word Muktza literally means set apart or set aside. It comes from the word Katze, which means something on the edge. Uh, and so Muktza is something that's kind of pushed away. Uh, there was actually a location in people's property called the Muktze, which was an area, typically a low, flat roof uh, or something of that sort, where people would lay out fruit in order to dry it. And the idea was if you put it out there, it was out of mind until it was fully dried and it was kind of out of your context. And that's sort of what Muktza means, something that's out of your context for Shabbat or in some cases for Yom Tov. Um, the proper term in halacha for something that we refer to as muktze is asur betiltul or isur tiltul. Letaltel means to carry something. We're not talking about carrying something as transporting it from one domain to another, which is possibly a chilul shabbat oraita. We're talking about moving something even within one room, picking something up and moving it. That's isur tiltul, and that's the practical implication of defining something as muktze. But as we'll see, the, uh, the issue is complex, the source is complex, the categorizations are many, um, and, uh, and the reasoning behind it is also something subject to some discussion. And that's what we're going to do. The goal of this is not to be a practicum, uh, but rather to get a general sense of the uh, categorization and the foundations. Okay, we're going to start in Tanakh. Now, this may sound strange, but we've done this before, to start in Tanakh with something which is seemingly entirely rabbinic in nature uh, and in source, uh, but as you will see, the sugyot point us back to this, to this piece. Uh, a little bit of history. Um, Shabbat. Shabbat is the one uh, area which is um, not interpersonal and not about idolatry, that shows up numerous times in the Nevi'im as being something that there were people who were trying to get around or who were not observing. And seemingly, it's always in the context of uh, business. We see this in Yumiahu, we see this in Amos, uh, we see this uh, seemingly in, uh, in Yishayahu. Uh, and so in, in the uh, beginning of the Second Temple period, uh, during the period that we refer to as Shivat Tzion, uh, which is roughly the end of the 6th century BCE and mainly the 5th century BCE, that's the beginning of that period, uh, we do have the prophetic historic books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is really considered one book in Tanakh, which are presented for the most part as narrative and tell us stories about the restoration of the community. Now, the two characters that we're talking about, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Ezra was a Kohen, Sofer Mahir. He was a religious leader in Babel who came approximately 70 years or so after the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, uh, found a relatively small community. He led what we call the Aliyah HaShniya, the second major immigration. It was a much more major immigration to Israel uh, to return. And he established um, religious norms or reestablished religious norms in the community, uh, which had been lacking until that point. We hear some all sorts of interesting stories about the people hearing about Rosh Hashanah and hearing about Sukkot and seemingly not knowing about them. And on the one hand, being excited to fulfill this, these mitzvot, on the other hand, being very, um, very regretful uh, and contrite over the fact that they hadn't done so for a while. In any case... Uh, the, the famous uh, Reformation of Ezra 
was in the, the expulsion of all the foreign wives that the men had taken. Um, and then we read this passage in Sefer Nehemiah, Perak Yod Gimel, towards the end of Nehemiah, Pasuk Tervav. Uh, and this is in the middle of Tefillah that Nehemiah is offering up to Hashem. And he says, among other things, including the, the uh, separation of the wives, I saw people in Yehuda, in the lands of Yehuda, uh, trampling wine, or you know, trampling grapes um, on Shabbat. They bring their piles of wheat and put them on the donkeys. And they bring grapes, and they bring wine and grapes and figs, and all sorts of other burdens. And bring them to Shalim on Shabbat. And then they'd be selling. So in other words, there was this mass Chilul Shabbat going on, which had to do with with business. Okay, so that's background. Keep that in mind. Okay, now let's go to to the Mishnah, uh, which is uh, on on, uh, Source 2. Which find in our sugya, Rabbi Yosi Merakol Akelim Nitalim Chutz Min Hamasar Hagadol Viatayd Shel Macharisha. So Rabbi Yosi makes this statement, which is that all vessels and all tools are allowed to be moved, uh, except for the huge saw and the plow plug, uh, which was evidently a major um, um, farm implement and something of great expense. Okay, we're going to see what the background behind this is. This is all connected to sort of the, the beginning story of Muktzah. So now let's find out. There's a Tosefta, which tells us the following. We see it in Source 3, Barishonaha Originally, the rule was, There's only three things you're allowed to move on Shabbat. Now, clearly, there's way more things than that you can move on Shabbat. You can move your clothes and food, prepared food, and, uh, and dishes, etc., so we have to see what kind of three things this is. Maktsoa shel dvela vezuma listeron shel kterav sakeng tana shel gabei shochan. These are all things related to food, uh, but not directly for eating, but for preparing food in a permissible way. Chazru liot mosifin v'holchin. So then they went back and they added more things that are allowed to be carried, allowed to be moved. Ad she'amru until they finally came up to the to the final statement, which we have in our Mishnah. Now, the first two added opinions there. Each of them added one more item that is not allowed to be moved, and because it's a significant uh, item, Rabbi Nechemia comes and has a whole different approach, and his approach in this area is documented throughout the sugyot is being different. He says, even a talit, even a, a fork, can only be taken for need. What kind of need? And that's a major topic that we have to deal with. So Rabbi Lazar comes along and says that that's actually a machloket. The Beit Shammai says, essentially the same as from Nehemia. That you can only pick something up for need. What kind of need? Again, and Beit Hillel says for need or not for need. So why are you picking it up? It's not for need. So we have to see what these definitions are. Okay, go now to the sugya in the Gemara. It's our central sugya, although there are already a dozen central sugya about Moksa that we have covered. Tana Rabbanan. Here we go. Barishana Hayomrim. And this is the Brita that we just saw in the Tosefta. Those are the three things originally that you're allowed to move. Alright, so this is now the line which is a little bit different um, that, uh, than, uh, than the formulation in the Tosefta that we have. Because it sounds as if there were several re-legislations that continued to get more lenient. Now, this is a very unusual move in halacha, and we're going to see the Aruch HaShokhan explaining how this happened. Uh, but they permitted it, and then they permitted more, and they permitted more. So they started from basically saying you can't move anything, except for maybe things that, that should be obvious to us, um, until they got to the point where we say you could move anything except a few things that we have to see why those things are out of bounds. Now, 
What does that mean? They permitted, and then they permitted more, and permitted more. Three steps. So Amar Abaya, Abaya says the following. And now we're going to get into some categorizations. And if you look at page six, you will see some of these categories lined up. At the end of this year, we'll go over it. But you can see them lined up. Amar Abaya, means a tool which is used basically and, and, and broadly for a permitted use, like a dish or a cup. Lutzorach kufo, so you can move it for its own purpose, like you want to eat off the dish. Then they went added, and they said you, you can also use something like that, Lutzorach mikomo, if you need its place. So, for instance, you want to study, and there's a plate sitting on the spot where you want to study, you can move the plate out of the way. And then the final step was to take items which are typically used for forbidden acts. And the example that we'll keep coming back to is a hammer. So you can take a hammer to use it for a permissible thing like cracking open nuts, but not because you need its place. So that's as far as it went. And also, this is only things that you can pick up with one hand, not that you need two hands for. And Shamru, until they came to the final thing, and the final thing was even if it's something big that you need two hands for. That's Abaye's take on this. So no surprise here, but Rava disagrees with Abaye and says, So since the first step was If they permitted using this particular vessel, so why do why would it make a difference that I'm moving it in order to use it or moving it in order to make space? So Rava doesn't accept that distinction. So Rava, so Rava says a different way of interpreting this sequence. The first thing is they permitted things which are essentially used for permissible acts like dishes. Whether you need it because you want to eat on it or whether you need it because you want that space and you want to move it out of the way. Then they added a third component, which is something that is permissible to use, like a dish. You can move, even if to move it from the sun to the shade. And that's going to be the way that we're going to speak about moving something in order to spare it. In other words, sometimes you move something because you want to use it. Sometimes you move something because you want to get it out of the way because the space is needed. And sometimes you want to move it because where it is is in danger. It's teetering. It's in the sun. It's uh, in, in the rain. And you want to move it out of the way. We call that mechamal itself. That was the first step. So they didn't permit that. Then the second step was to permit a, let's say, hammer. Both to use the hammer to crack open nuts, something permissible on Shabbat, or to use the hammer to get it out of the way because you want it. But not to spare it. And Rava expands on Abaye. Abaye said one hand, two hands. He said, and still all that they were permitting was something that a person could carry alone, but not something you need two people for. Until they came to the point of saying you can move everything, even if it needs two people. Now, Abaye challenged this take of Rava. Meducha. Now, Meducha is a spice grinder. So the activity that it's used for typically is a sort. If there's garlic already in it, you can carry it. Right? So you see here um, that uh, that a davar uh, cannot be moved um, unless there's already got something in it that's permissible because the garlic itself is permissible. It's already been grinded. Uh, being ground. So Rav's answer, or our answer on behalf of Rav, no, that's talking about getting out of the sun, sparing it. There's another challenge. That if you have a, a board, a cutting board, and you had already cut meat on that board, you're not allowed to carry it. So Rav will answer again, yeah, that's talking about moving the board out of the sun, but not a question of moving the board because you want its space. That, what he would say, is permissible. That all leads us to this final statement, which goes back to our pasuk. Amar Rabbi Chanina, ben nishneit mishnah zo. Now this mishnah, meaning this mishnah that says you can only carry three things, 
And then they were matir, 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 but the first part, they can only carry three things, was taught in the days of Nehemiah. Now, if, if we take this literally, and we have no reason not to, that means that this ruling goes back to the times of Nehemiah, and important to note that Nehemiah existed, lived at the time, at the very, very end of prophecy. The Navi Malachi is likely still alive in Yerushalayim with him. All right, so keep that in mind. We'll see that again pop up in the Orch HaShohan. So in other words, Rechanina seems to say as follows, that what Nechemiah did was to legislate against basically interacting with any kind of these tools as a protection and as a response to the people's widespread Chilul Shabbat, which had to do with work. Okay. Let's see a little bit more in the uh, early source material. We're going to actually spend most of the time in this year in the Rambam. Now, the Talmud Yerushalmi has uh, takes our same Mishnah, and then, as you see in the highlighted part, Rabbi Avahum B'Shem Rabbi Elazar Rishonai Yukol HaKelim Telim B'Shabbat. So, remember, we started out by saying, originally, you couldn't carry anything, and then they were matir, matir, matir. He goes back further. He says, originally, you were allowed to move anything. Now notice, this is a language we don't find in the Bavli. Since there was suspicion that people were violating Yom Tov and Shabbat, and he quotes the Pasuk in Nehemiah, they forbade everything. In other words, what happened was that uh, Nehemiah arrived in Yerushalayim, Ezra had already been there for a while, and he saw widespread Chilul Shabbat, and he said, that's it, we're passing a law that says you can't move any tools. Any vessels, any tools, barrels, anything, can't move them. Then people became observant. They restrained themselves. So they permitted more and continued permitting more until they permitted everything. Which means essentially from the perspective of this Yerushalmi, they went back to where they were at the beginning. Everything was permitted because there's no reason to forbid it. And then as a protection against this one generational violation of Shabbat, widespread violation of Shabbat. They forbade everything, and then little by little, they rolled things back as they saw people were observing, and they said, you could you could move everything, again, those two exceptions. Okay. One last thing I want to see here um, is is the beginnings of an explanation of what Muktz is about, what Yisur Tiltul is about, although we've already really seen it. And that is, we've seen now, both in the Bavli and the Rishalmi, anchored in the Pasuk and Nehemiah, that the prohibition of moving vessels around is essentially a response to far worse Chilul Shabbat. Chilul Shabbat that involves trampling grapes and pressing grapes and, and loading up animals and making piles. All of these things are malachot, making piles of, of grain and, and pressing grapes, and then, of course, taking them in to sell them in the city. All of that on Shabbat, and the response was kind of extreme push away from from uh, from not being able to move anything. We're going to see something that's related to that uh, in two places in Shabbat, but also in Masachah Beitzah at the beginning of the last parak of Beitzah. Very quickly, uh, the Mishnah says, "Mishilim perot biyom tov." You're allowed to uh, lower perot fruit through the skylight. If you have them on the roof, you can lower it through the skylight. But not on Shabbat. Okay, good. Now, in the next Mishnah, uh, I'm only hitting the parts that are, are significant for us. This is source 6. By the way, this is a very large, a very significant Mishnah. Anything that you're, that you're in violation for because of what's called a Shavot. We've already talked about, about the word Shavot. Shavot we generally regard as all of the rabbinic prohibitions of Shabbat that are put there in order to ensure resting. So... All the things that are a violation of Shvot, Mishum Rishut, see what that is, Mishum Mitzvah, B'Shabbat, Chayavin Allah B'Yom Tov. Meaning, the same rules apply to Yom Tov as to Shabbat. The only exception is, of course, in areas of food preparation. Now, Ve'eluin Mishum Shvot, what's that? Low lean by line, you're not allowed to climb a tree on Shabbat because you might break off a branch. You're not allowed to ride an animal. Again, you might break off a branch in order to, to whip the animal. You're not allowed to swim. What kind of swimming this is? Is it a river? Is it a lake? Is it, uh, is it uh, closed, open? Discussion, not for right now. 
Um, and the reason is that you might make a raft uh, in order to make it, um, typically it's a river. There's a dancing and clapping and stomping of different sorts. All right, that's all Mishum um, Shvot. Uh, What's that? Rashut here doesn't mean permission, but rather authority. We don't have Beitin in session. We don't do Kiddushin, betrothal. Chalitza Yibum on Shabbat. Ve'elon Mishum Mitzvah. What's that? Lomaktishin v'lo marichin v'lo machrimin v'lo magrimin v'lo amaser. Essentially giving gifts to God. Uh, whether you maktish something or you're doing an erech or cherem, which is a hektish of sorts, or even to separate trumot and masrot. Now, here's the line that, that we're concerned with for our purpose. Kol elu biyom tov amru. All of these things are prohibited on yom tov. Kal v'chomer Shabbat. Certainly, all the more so, they're prohibited on Shabbat. Now, the Gemara asks the following. You're telling me that um, that all of these things are prohibited on Yom Tov, and certainly all the more on Shabbat. Or, Amina, we have a challenge. So, in other words, we find a distinction between Yom Tov and Shabbat about lowering the fruit. We saw that at the beginning of the first Mishnah. So Yosef has one answer, and he says the difference between Rabbi Leizer and Yeshua in a case of Otovet Pano, not our issue. Go to the bottom of the page. Ela Amar of Papa Lokasha Ha Beit Shemai Ha Beit Tilel. Alright, what's that? None. Beit Shemai Rim Ain Motzein Lo Atakatan Velo Atalula Velo Atsefer Torah Lushet Rabim. Beit Shemai says you may not carry things on Yom Tov out to Rishut Rabim. May not carry them. Beit Tilel Matirin. Okay, so now. They are prohibiting here about, the prohibition here is about carrying, meaning transporting from public to private to, to public domain, or in the public domain. So Dilma Lohi, we said maybe that machloket isn't the same as ours. Ad kan lo kan hatam Maybe Beit Shammai's only position was that hotza'a is not permitted on Yom Tov. Right? But tiltu, meaning muktza, is... And the answer is atu tiltu lav tzarah Isn't tiltu itself part of hotza? Meaning, isn't the prohibition against moving things around a subset or connected to the issue of caring, which suddenly puts muktzah into a whole new category, but not so different than we thought? Because let's go back to Nehemiah. What did Nehemiah see? He said, "I saw people preparing." to go to, to the marketplace on Shabbat and loading up their animals and everything else. So we made this prohibition. Right? So, uh, and so is the prohibition really of saying kind of a blanket statement, people are violating Shabbat, we're just going to ban all sorts of movements in the house and in your property? Or is it that people are carrying things on Shabbat and therefore we're going to ban the moving things so they don't come to carry them? Which means muktza is some sort of a protection against carrying and that's it. Okay, keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. Now, let's take a look, and we're going to come back to it pretty quickly. Take a look at the Rambam here. The Rambam, first of all, in Perak Chaf Aleph of Hilchot Shabbat, source 8. This is a broad introduction to what we're doing. Ne'amar Torah Tishpot. The Torah says you must rest on Shabbat. Even things that are not malacha, you still have to avoid. You're not allowed to do strenuous labor on Shabbat just because it doesn't involve the technical malacha. And there's many, many things that Chachamim prohibited under the category of Shvot. Now, is Shvot the right or the Rabbanan? The answer is yes, meaning it's the Rabbanan in that the rabbis formulated the legislation, but it's the Oraita in that by formulating that legislation, they are fulfilling the Torah's mandate to rest on Shabbat. Some of these shvuyot, shvutim, as they're, as they're commonly miscalled, but some of these shvitot or shvuyot are things that are similar to a malacha. And some of them are protections against actually violating a malacha. In other words, some of them are activities that are not themselves prohibited, and they couldn't lead to a prohibition, but they're so similar to a prohibited activity that they said to make Shabbat different, we prohibit it. Others are things that could lead to it. And the Rabbim then gives an example, it goes over for the next couple of halachot, about the, the, the malacha of choresh, of plowing. So a tolda de oraita of choresh is chofer, digging a hole. 
And so therefore, he says, as an example, if you, because they all had dirt floors, so if you even out the dirt floor to filling in the holes, that's chayav. That's the chayav doraita. So therefore, for instance, you're not allowed to um, go out to a field that's fallow and to use it as an uh, outdoor privy because very likely you're going to fill it in and then you're going to, so that's exerah because you might come to violate Shabbat. Let's say that you come into your storehouse, and again, all dirt floors, and you want to move all the barrels out of the way on Shabbat so that people can come and sit and uh, and eat together on Shabbat or have somebody come and teach Torah on Shabbat, something that's of a mitzvah. You shouldn't empty it fully out. Because you might end up uh, evening out the dirt and filling in the holes, right? So those are things that are zero. Then the Ram goes on. Now, the reason I brought that to your attention is because of source 9. In Parak Chafdalin, Aleph, the Ramam says, then we saw this already, And it sounds similar to the previous statement. There are things that are prohibited on Shabbat, even though they're not even like a malacha, unlike the filling in the holes. And they won't lead to a malacha. So why are they prohibited? Like, for instance, talking business. We already had a couple of shiurim on this. You're not allowed to go around doing your business on Shabbat or go to your factory and check it out on Shabbat. Or even to talk about business. Um, we already saw this from a few weeks ago. That's Daber Davar. Good. Now, further on in that parak, and this is the new information, uh, but under this heading of things that Chachamim prohibited in order to make sure, or shall we say, things that are prohibited on Shabbat, even though they are not themselves a malacha, could not lead to a malacha, nor are they similar in action to a malacha, but it's in order to um, to increase the sense of shvot, the resting on Shabbat. Okay, asru chachamim. Here we go. Letaltel mikzat dvarim Shabbat. The chachamim prohibited moving certain things. It's not touching, by the way. It's moving certain things on Shabbat. Kederek shosevachol in the same way that you do it during the week. Here's the explosive statement. Why did they even come here? Why did they even start this prohibition? So he says as follows. This is all the rabbis. I mean, it's all the rabbanan. And he said, since the prophets, Yeshayahu, said you should not walk on Shabbat like you walk during the week. Remember, we talked about big steps and crossing a river. And you're talking on Shabbat, should not be like, like on a weekday. How much more so that the things you move around on Shabbat should be different? So it should not like be like a mundane day in your eyes. What will happen? You'll end up start moving things around the house, rearranging the furniture, putting things away. That means from room to room. Or to start squirreling things away. Think about it. You're sitting at home, and unless you're actively engaged in Dvar Mitzvah, you got nothing to do. So you're sitting at home doing nothing. When you get bored, so you want to do something. In the end, you won't have rested. And the whole idea that you should rest, and your household should rest, and your servant should rest, etc., is lost. So he said, part one, the reason for Mukta is to make sure that you don't just spend the whole day moving things around. The second problem is that if you start looking at and moving things which are typically used for prohibited acts, you might end up using them a little bit. And doing a malacha, which means now he's saying muktzah is like a gzera, like don't move barrels around because you might fill in the holes. Also, not everybody is an artisan. They don't really work hard all the time. People who are travelers or people who sit in the marketplace. They don't do work on her ever. 
ואם יהיה מותר ללכת לדבר את הטל כשאר ימים, נמצא שלא שבת שביתה ניכרת. And if they can just act the regular way in the house, then שבת's no different than a regular day. So, in other words, he says there's three considerations. Consideration one is that Shabbat activity should be different than, than a weekday. Second is you don't want to be involved with things that are used for Yisurim because you might violate Nisur. And third, which is similar to one but not the same, is to make sure that Shabbat looks like a different day. Therefore, this prohibition is equal to all people, including people who are artisans and work hard. And now the Rambam is going to explain. And he says that therefore they prohibited moving things except for kelim, vessels that are actually needed. Now, the Ravad speaks up here. So I will again introduce the Ravad because critical to know this. The Ravad, Ravram ben David of Puskir, was a great Chacham in Provence. Provence was the one community that the Rambam, living in faraway Egypt, felt was, um, was a uh, collegial with him enough that he, that he engaged in dialogue with them via letters. And he sent folios of the Mishnah Torah as he was composing it to the community, the rabbinic community in Provence, which is in the south part of France, and, um, and, and awaited their comments and sometimes uh, re-edited the Mishnah Torah based on their comments. And uh, some of the, uh, obviously, earliest commentary that we have on the Mishneh Torah is from that community. Um, but the Ravad's glosses are so critical that they are printed in every standard edition of the Rambam. And in the classic edition of the printed Rambam, they're actually printed inside the text of the Rambam, meaning kind of built into it as like a little window in a different font. So the Ravad here... And the Ravad, by the way, is sometimes acerbic. His comments are usually quite terse. Uh, he says, He quotes something else. He quotes the Gemara we just saw, which is, isn't Tiltul also an extension of caring? So he said, therefore, he said, the Rambam left out a big reason that's explicit in the, in the, in the Gemara, meaning the Rambam came up with three different reasons for Muktza, which aren't written anywhere. And in the meantime, a reason that is written somewhere he ignored, which is that it's a subset of caring, or it's like it will lead to caring. He also quotes the statement that this Mishnah of prohibiting all of these things was during the time of Nechemiah. Only three things can be moved. He said, so you see that the prohibition is really an extension of caring. So the Ravad's subtle critique here, it's quite more subtle than he usually is, is that the Rambam should have included, should have mentioned that as the reason, and that should have been the key reason for Muktza. Okay, the Magin Mishnah here, in his comment, uh, says the following, and it's a beautiful statement. He says, Rabbeinu katav b'chan tamim nechonim meod. He said, the Rambam wrote here, extremely correct, it's an interesting statement. Extremely correct reasons, Be'isura Tiltul. None of these are mentioned in the Gemara, and the Rambam came up with them on his own, and they're brilliant. He didn't say brilliant, he said correct, but certainly with a lot of praise. And he mentions the Ravad. Why didn't the Rambam mention that? That's the Ravad's critique. So now the Magid Mishnah is going to defend the Rambam. So he's going to claim that the Ravad is right. The original reason for prohibiting Tiltul is because of Hotza'ah. Because it makes sense. People were taking things to the marketplace. So they said, you can't even move those things. So that way you won't carry them. Then, little by little, they permitted some kelim. So he says, oh, so why, if they permitted things because they saw people weren't caring anymore and going to business anymore, so why did anything stay asur? He said, that's the reasons that the Rambam gave. The Rambam was explaining reasons for all the things that were left after they rolled back the other isurim. So now he explains what this, the Gemara meant in this piece of the Ravad quoted. That the first reason, the primary reason, 
they get outside. The first reason they prohibit anything, think about it. The Torah says, don't do malachot, 39 malachot, all the substance of malachot, toldot. What does it have to do with me moving a hammer around the house or picking up a pencil or picking up a rock? What does it have to do with any, any of that? He says, that was all originally done as a geder of hotza'ah, of caring. So even though the original reason for it was gone, because people are not are not violating hotza'a in those numbers, uh, nonetheless, the original decree was still there. He said, so perhaps the Rambam was just adding in things that we didn't know otherwise. In other words, the Rambam wasn't rejecting what the Gemara says. He was just saying, I have other suggestions that nobody ever heard of, which is why Muktza is there, and that's what the Rambam here said. Okay, what you see on the uh, on the next page, which is page four, is uh, length. The Archa Shochan and his defense of the Rambam. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple lines from it because it's quite long. You read it on your own. It's uh, it, it's 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 quite interesting. What the the Archa Shochan, you know, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Chiel um, uh, uh, of Navardak uh, wrote. Um, and he defends the Rambam spiritedly against the Ravad's attack. Um, and he, he makes the following point in the first paragraph. Um, he says that if you think, and it's a brilliant point, if you think that the original decree of Muktza was made in the times of Nehemiah, then how could they ever have rolled back that prohibition? After all, we have a rule, which is, that you can, and no Beitin can ever re, uh, retract or overturn an earlier ruling of a Beitin unless they're greater in numbers and in stature than that earlier Beitin, which doesn't happen. And plus, he points out that in the times of Nehemiah, there were still prophets around. So, who's going to say no to a decree that was made then? And he says, and it's very hard to imagine that in Nehemiah's time, all of this process happened, that they prohibited all this and then they rolled it back. The rollback must have happened later. So he says as follows in paragraph Dalit. He says, based on what we saw in the first paragraph of the Ramadan that we looked at, that essentially all of these things are guided by the Torah, not the Rabbanan, meaning the Torah says Shvot, and therefore it's up to the rabbis to decide what it is we need to do in order to make sure we have a proper Shvita, proper resting on Shabbat. All right, that's basically it is. So therefore he says, in paragraph A, all of the Isur of Muktza, they, they were always there. And then it became the job of in any every generation to identify how strict and how lenient to be. So he says, in the times of Nehemiah, because of the widespread violation of Shabbat, they ramped it up and they prohibited all of these other things, moving these things because of that. And then Built into that was, but this is a temporary decree until things get better, and then we'll roll it back. And it's all under the rubric of the the Torah, which is to make sure I have to have proper shvita. So take a look at the bottom of paragraph here, the last three lines on page four. So what the Rambam was explaining, and this is the opposite, shall we say, of the Magid Mishnah, said was the original reasons for Muktzah, the original reasons for Muktzah that were put in at the very beginning were to make sure that your Shabbat should be special and that you don't sit around and start messing with things because you're bored. And he said the Rambam in his great understanding explained, if there's no Muktzah, then there's no resting. Then there's no more Shabbat rest. That's all included in that one word, tishpot, rest, as we saw at the beginning of Gemara. And then, in the times of Nehemiah, there was a separate consideration. So, in other words, here's how the Orach HaShulchan presents it, and it is brilliant. He says, originally, 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 when the Torah says, Uvayom tishpot, on the seventh day you rest, that therefore implies and inheres a prohibition against moving things around in order to have a day of, of rest, of, of clear rest. However, that still allowed many things to be moved, things you need for Shabbat, etc. And then in the days of Nehemiah, they saw there was a bigger problem, which is people are carrying things in order to go to the marketplace, etc. And so they added new legislation because of that specific reason of carrying, 
get and that was based on the need and the minute the need became less of an issue and the violations ceased they were able to roll back to the original position which is therefore what the Rambam presented what the Rambam does uh, here in Perak Hafei in the first 11 halachot that I copied down on page uh, 5 and I can read them all but you can take a look at them as he he defines the different kinds of things that we have. And you see the list on page 6. So we're going to take a look at a few selections from these halachot. <clears throat> and he says as follows. There are, there's such a thing as a tool or a vessel whose job is a permissible job. The phrase is klishim and it's a good phrase to know because that's the halachic nomenclature. It's a vessel or a tool that you're, that you're allowed to do on Shabbat what you normally do with it on Chol, meaning its main use is a permissible act. Kagon, costly shtotpo, like a cup to drink from. Karala cholba, or a bowl to eat from. Sakin lachtochpa basar, or a small knife in order to use for cutting meat. Or upat, or bread. Or kunas lefatsebo egozim, or a kind of hammer used to break open nuts, only specifically for that. That's category one. Right? He's not saying what you do with that category. He's just defining the categories. And you'll see on page 6 that I listed seven categories of things without defining what you could do with them or what you can't do with them. Second, halacha bet. There is a kli, that's the phrase, meaning a vessel, a tool, which its normal use is a prohibited act on Shabbat. Kigon, Machtesha, like a grinder. Rechaim, or a mill. You're not allowed to grind and to mill flour on Shabbat. So, it, so that means that that is defined as a mill, is defined as a klishim lachtol isur. Okay? Now, let's get some of the rules. Kol klishim lachtol heter. Right? So a fork, a bowl. Bein hayashal eitz o shal cheres o shal evan o shal matechet. No matter what the material is, mutal l'tatlo b'shabbat. You can move it on Shabbat. Because you need the clay. Or you need its space. Or to, or to, um, is actually to save it, to put it, in, you know, keep it in a safe place. Or you need the space, or because you want to use it. Again, doesn't matter the material. If you want to use it for a permissible use, or because you want its space, you're allowed to move it. But not for itself, meaning that if it's in a place where it's going to get damaged, you can't move it out of the way to save it from getting damaged, like it's in the sun. And now he gives an example. You have a bowl. It's a wooden bowl for eating. You can move it to eat from it. You can move it because you want to sit in its place. It's in, it's, it's in the way. Or you can move it so it's not stolen, it's outside. That's for itself. That's what we call chamal itself, from the sun to the shade. Or you move it out of the sun so it doesn't dry out or it doesn't break. Or get out of the rain. So it doesn't puff up and, and get destroyed. You can move it for itself. And you're allowed to do it because it is now, you're allowed to move a mill or a grinder. Let's say of a mill and you want to smash nuts with it. Or to use it as a stepladder to climb up. You could use a mill, even though a mill is a klishim lachto leisur. That's called because you want to smash the nuts with it. You can't move it to save it from getting broken. Or to be stolen. To save it from that. Good. Now, what about things that are not a kli? Stones. Money. Money is muktza because it's not a kli. Kanim. Sticks. Korot. Beams. You can't move them at all. Even a big stone or a big beam, even though it takes 10 people to carry it, if it has a din of a kli, so it's maybe got certain kind of edging on it or 
handles or something like that, then you could carry it, even though it's very big, because it's a cleat. Dal tolta bayit, doors. You can't move them. Why? Because they're typically in their hinges, connected. Therefore, if they come apart, they come out of the hinges, you can't move them. Same thing with dirt and sand, the dead body. You can't move them at all. Um, the, uh, the point here is that things like rocks, sand, dirt, are all things that have no use on Shabbat. So there's something, by the way, that you could, you could do here. Let's say that you wanted to play a game with rocks, kind of like jacks, but all you had was a few little pebbles. So you set those pebbles aside on Friday and say, I'm using these pebbles for the game. Now they have a purpose, and now they're fine. Right? There's uh, an old game we used to play called Arbam Maklot with four sticks. You take four twigs, and you'd set them up, and it's a jumping game. So you just take those sticks before Shabbat, before Shabbat and say, I'm setting these aside for Arbam Maklot, and uh, and that's good enough. Okay. Mutal um, tell Akli. I'm going to finish with with Zion here. Mutal tell Akli. Afilu shalot zorach tashmisha. Sotpa malacha shalon asal tashmisha. You can move a kli even not to use its normal use, but but an abnormal use. Kate, what's the example? No tell Adam kunas lefatzeh bo egozim. Again, you could take a hammer to break nuts. Kordom lach tochbo dvela, or a saw in order to cut open a big uh, fig wheel. Megiral gareba tagvina, or a saw like to cut, or I'd call it a big cheese piece. Magrifali grofpa tagrogorot, etc. Tarachat vetamazleg, latetalab ochala katan. Even a pitchfork that's used in the, in the barn, you could use to feed a child. Let's say you have a, a, a weaver's needle, so you could use it to stick it in something as a food, like grab a food. Let's say you have a needle that's used by certain artisans, but you want to use it to open up a door. Which is, this is a In other words, you're using it for something which is mutar. Now, we're, there's one more that we have to see here because it takes us back to the, um, to the original uh, issue, which is that you can move everything except, and we mentioned the Yatel Shemach Rishah, so let's see where that is. Look at Halachat Tet. Kol Kli Damav. Any Kli which is so, so expensive and so fragile, perhaps, that you're afraid that by using it, it's going to lose its value. Kigon, Kelima Muktsim Lishchora. Things that are set aside for business. Or things that are very, very valuable. You're very concerned that they're going to get ruined. This is a special category called Muktza of Chisron Kis, a financial loss. Here we go. The big saw. So if a person is a, is a carpenter and he has one saw, and that's the big saw that he has that he uses. And if that gets destroyed, his whole livelihood can go out. He's really careful not to move it. Can't move it on Shabbat. If you're a farmer and you have the big plug that connects the plow to the yoke to the animal, as an example, if you're a shochet and your shochet shchita knife, these are all things that are associated with particular artisans, and if the that particular tool is something that they value greatly and that their livelihood depends on, and they're very concerned about its uh, about its loss uh, being damaged, then that is muktsa in a category we call kis. If you look briefly at the last page, you will see that at the bottom. I, I noticed that I noted, and we saw this already in the Rambam, that there are three different motivations you would have for moving something. The first motivation you have for moving something is because you want to use it. The second is because it's in the way and you want to put something else there. And the third is because you want to save it from where it is. So, as an example, you have a um, a bowl <clears throat> sitting um, on your space on the table. So you want to move it to the next space because you want to serve them food. That's the Tzorach Gufo. You want to move it to the next space because you want to put a safer down and it's in the way. That's the Tzorach Mekomo. You want to move it to the next place because the, your part of the table is kind of rickety and you're afraid the bowl's going to fall and break. So those are the three reasons essentially why you'd want to move something. And on top, I, I categorized 
muktzah into seven categories. Uh, one or two of them, uh, two of them we didn't touch on at all, so just kind of touch, summarize them here. Uh, one is muktzah Mahmad gufa, something that has no inherent, no, no inherent name, no inherent identity. Dirt, rocks, things like that, no inherent value on Shabbat, uh, and it's not a kli. Muqsamach uh, Mitzvah, something we didn't talk about at all. And the classic example is the decorations of a sukkah or the Araminim <coughs> are Muqsam on Shabbat because they're set aside for a mitzvah. A mitzvah you don't do on Shabbat, by the way. The Noy Sukkah is a, is a different thing, and that's Muqsam not just on Shabbat, it's Muqsam actually during the entire week, but only for purposes of not, not eating it. In other words, you could enjoy it and you could touch it and move it around, but you cannot eat it, so it's a different kind of Muqsam. Moktza Mahmat Isur is something we didn't really talk about, which is not that it's a vessel, a tool used for an Isur, but it's something in which there's an Isur right now on it. And the only one that comes to mind is a lit candle on Shabbat. Now, Moktza Mahmat Mius, which is something is Moktza because it's disgusting, is the kind of oil lamps they had after they go out were kind of gross because of the oil. And that's Moktza Mahmat Mius. We saw Muqsamachat Chitaron Kis, something is very valuable and you're afraid it's going to destroy A Kli Shemalachto Isur, a tool that's used for Isur, and a Kli Shemalachto Leheter, a tool that's used for permissible things like a bowl, etc. Now, uh, it's, it's critical to know these, I, these categories because then, and you'll see that there are multiple opinions about some of the details uh, here. But then you can identify when we're talking about a klishim lachtolis or, or something that's inherently machmat gufo, muktza uh, uh, like rocks, <coughs> uh, something that's been really pushed out of your world of Shabbat um, uh, or never really entered, uh, then, then you can understand how to categorize all the different things that are in our world. And by being sensitive to that, of course, we, we have, as what the Ramam says, a shvitani keret, a very recognizable and, and clearly discernible rest, in which, of course, by putting all of those things out and knowing uh, which things can be sort of part of our world of Shabbat, we also were able to focus on the the true goal of it, which we saw a few weeks ago in the shiur on Kavod and Oneg, which is to uh, to to use the restrictions as the opportunity to deepen our bonds with family, with community, and ultimately, of course, with Torah and with Hakadosh Baruch Hu.